Alexa and the other guests, and perhaps even Georgina, all understood the fleeing from war, from the kind of poverty that crushed human souls, but they would not understand the need to escape from the oppressive lethargy of choicelessness. They would not understand why people like him, who were raised well-fed and watered but mired in dissatisfaction, conditioned from birth to look towards somewhere else, eternally convinced that real lives happened in that somewhere else, were now resolved to do dangerous things, illegal things, so as to leave. None of them starving or raped or from burned villages, but merely hungry for choice and certainty. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. Uh, if this is your first time with us, welcome to the world's smallest book club about big books. Um, it's a basic premise. We try and read books over 500 pages just as a lark, and then we talk about it for a while. Um, it's been pretty fun so far, to be honest. This one was especially fun in some ways, uh, although I should note that my copy was less than 500 pages, and Bill's copy was more than 500 pages because we had different you know, additions, you would think this might inspire us to make the big read about word count, but I'm never going to do that. I don't care. I like 500 pages as an arbitrary marker. Right, Bill? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm absolutely not yeah. going to be 100%. 100%. Well, then, like, sometimes we read stuff written in other languages, so then is it the English word count or the Russian word right. count? Because yeah, I, mean, that's I think Russian true. does fewer gets, words yeah. all the time. And, and then what do we do yeah. if we read something that was originally written in Mandarin? I mean, then where are we going to be? So... <laughs> Yeah, so don't, you know, again, not that anyone ever tweets us, like, complaints or anything, but tweet Bill if you do. Um, <laughs> Dear sir, <all> so this <laughs> your podcast is based on lies, <laughs> wrapped in deceit um, and trickery. Uh, Mom, just call me. Just call me next time. <laughs> Uh, so okay yeah so welcome to the big readcast um this uh this episode's book is americana by chimamanda ngozi adichie um she's a famous very famous um nigerian author who went to school in america for a while and she now splits her time i think between america and nigeria based on wikipedia um She's a she's super well respected. She's super well you know known, and so she kind of is one of those authors who bridges the gap of critical, uh, critically acclaimed and popular. Honestly, our last episode that we did that wasn't you know year in reading was Freedom, I think. <laughs> I don't know. Yep. I'm pretty sure Freedom by Jonathan Franzen. And so for me, I kept going back to that as a sort of a comparison. Both books are very popular. Both books were pretty critically well received, and they're both kind of this you know um, saga love story identity community literary world building thing that i i want to talk about later but um but yeah i think we both liked it i think we're both excited to talk about it um i hadn't read her before um half a half of the yellow sun her other novel has been on my list for for a long time so i think after this book i i am kind of inspired to get to that one because i've heard some people say they, they prefer that one even more but yeah, I know. So I, I don't have a. I, sometimes we talk about the author themselves. I don't have a ton more information about her. I mean, she seems super interesting. She's got a you know a writing degree from John, Johns Hopkins, and you know she actively lives in two countries. And this book is kind of about that. So it's relevant, you know, maybe her biography in some ways, but the book certainly speaks for itself. So 
I don't know if you want to add anything else before maybe kind of summarizing the book, Bill, or you want to just yeah, dive into I, the summary? I know that Adiche became, has, is in the news a fair amount. Uh, she, she gave a couple of TED Talks, which were quoted, I think, on a Beyonce song at one point. Um, so she's definitely sort of popularly known. She's written some essays and, and such about feminism that I think have been uh, yeah, pretty, so pretty commonly essays, yeah, yeah pr- pretty pretty commonly talked about. I've not read those. I have read her 2009 short story collection, The Thing Around Your Neck. I read that three or four years ago and uh, re- really enjoyed most of it quite a bit. I think they're very good short stories. I f- I forgot you read that actually. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, it was, it was several years ago now. But I I think they were all pretty darn good short stories. Uh, generally, a very well respected uh, author and. Uh, and, and with good reason, based on the two things of hers I've read, they're both good, good stuff. So, uh, I could, I guess, I could summarize the book. Should I summarize the book? Yeah, some. I mean, yeah, it's it's a pretty, it's it's a pretty loose plot, but I think it'll be, you know, just to ground us. Yeah. So the generally uh, Americana, which is A M E R I C A N A H, and that is apparently a Nigerian slang term for someone who goes to the United States and then comes back to Nigeria and is sort of you know, one of those obnoxious study abroad kids, I guess, basically, right? Like, it changed up the accent and, uh, you know, talks a lot about American stuff and sort of refuses to do sort of Nigerian things. Like I said, we've all known that person uh, obnoxious study abroad sense. Uh, I do, so. I do love it. Sorry. I, it, Cause it's specifically introduced when um, the main two characters are in high school about someone who goes to, I think it might be England. Actually, they go to England for like a summer and they come back with a changed accent. It might've been America. It must've been America. Duh. So they, they go to America for like a summer and they come back with like a slightly different accent and everyone just roasts them. And I did love hearing that the other countries had that phenomenon. Cause that definitely happens in America where someone goes to Ireland for like a semester and comes back with a bit of a twang. And you think yeah. I, this isn't, this is impossible. You didn't pick up like an Irish accent. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it didn't happen. You chose it, which is fair, but you chose it. <laughs> Yeah, or, you know, just re- re- trying to use a lot of uh, English slang or whatever. I mean, I think I still probably affectedly refer to things I mean, I have, a few quid. I, well, I think I probably do that myself. The, vo- <laughs> the vocab, I think, the vocab is harder. Because when you actually spend a year, like, saying ta or cheers, you know what I mean? Like, you, you come to like words. And so, like, I feel like liking words is almost different to me than, like, you know, affecting the accent, you know? That's a good point. But it is, it's hard. Because in, in America, yeah, I try not to say ta. You know what I mean? Like, that's... <laughs> I've never said ta. That's that's a you thing, buddy. I don't know that one. I... <laughs> you don't know that was that was everyone in every pub I went to was like Tom mate and I was like oh t- uh, yeah yeah thanks no I, I heard it I just I don't think that one entered my own I mean mate did definitely and so did cheers oh yeah okay <laughs> yeah so, cheers I mean, was the more popular one I've I went to a lot of soccer for saying mate I've, I've been made fun of for saying that actually yeah so. I have too to be honest but I, I also like I did go to a lot of soccer pubs I think Ta was oh. more popular like in the Jericho side of town you know yeah well I wasn't going to soccer things that's not <laughs> i know that's I the know. devil's game i don't do <laughs> yeah we don't play with that in this house <laughs> uh, anyway uh, <laughs> sorry <laughs> but anyway uh, americana thus is a word which is is again sort of fraught with this question about being someone who is nigerian and then comes back to nigeria from america and is you know sort of changed in some way and is perhaps obnoxious but perhaps also a figure of uh a little bit of jealousy or admiration from the other folks i don't know i think that's sort of generally a summary of how I understand the slang yeah. term is used. That's certainly how it's used in the book uh, on the four or five times when it comes up. So uh, we have two main characters. I, I think it's fair to say we have a protagonist and a deuteragonist, I think. Um, yeah, for sure. And Ifemelu is the protagonist. She and, and Obinze is our, our second main character. Uh, Ifemelu is 
gets the opportunity to go study abroad in America for a while. Study abroad isn't even the right word. She gets an opportunity to study at university there. Uh, at first has a pretty hard time finding a job or making any money. Um, and she and Obinze are in a relationship. Obinze is this sort of quiet, studious guy who's actually really obsessed with America when he lives in Nigeria. He's really interested in it. He's, uh, reads all the American novels he can find. Um, but unfortunately, he does not get the chance to study abroad in America. It's implied at least partly because visas are harder for young men to get after 9-11. Um, right. So he actually goes to England for a while where he's not studying. He's just kind of visiting and working. Uh, they have kind of different experiences where he ultimately is going to get married for a while for the equivalent of a green card marriage and then gets caught on the day of his marriage and deported back to Nigeria. He ultimately ends up getting involved in some sort of like faintly shady, but not uniquely so business deals and ends up making a great deal of money on and like real estate in Lagos and the surrounding area. Uh, if Emilu, however, uh, eventually does get in, you know, goes through college, um, eventually starts writing a blog about race in America, which they, the book excerpts from a great deal. Uh, it's called Race Teenth, the experience of a non-American, oh, non, hmm, I should have looked up the title. But anyway, it's, it's about her experiences and opinions about race and racial issues in the United States as an African woman who was not, uh, you know, not an African-American woman, right? So she's from Africa rather than. Um, you know, having dis descent in Africa because her ancestors were right. brought over here as slaves. Um, so she and Obinze are dating when she goes over there, but she eventually cuts off complete contact with him after she has this just really horrible sort of quasi-prostitution experience because she can't come up with any money. It's a really horrible scene, actually. Uh, and so yeah, she kinda... it was pretty pretty awful. It was like it was weird because I've read much more disturbing like things as far as the events themselves but actually this was one of the more like sort of, sort of like sexual you know uh harm scenes that i feel like yeah it kind of did get under my skin in a way I would that agree was even that. more than usual yeah i mean obviously we're not going to go into any detail but in terms of what happens no. it's not particularly gruesome you know it's not we've, we've all read far worse but uh it, it's really and it's not very long either but it's a very effective scene and it leaves her feeling very strange and so she basically cuts off contact with him Ends up ultimately dating two other people while she's in the United States. Uh, she starts babysitting this sort of wealthy white family's kids, and they're pretty nice to her overall. Uh, and she ends up dating their cousin, Kurt, who is this sort of, you know, blonde, very cheerful, charming, <laughs> gorgeous guy yeah. who is sort of the clueless white boyfriend. It's a little more complicated than that, I would say, but at least he can be certainly that sometimes. Then after a while, she starts dating Blaine, who is this uh, black professor at Yale, uh, African-American professor at Yale, who uh, moves, is very, you know, eats the organic food and does all of the yoga and, you know, right. has all of the very, you know, the, the right progressive opinions about things and so on. So she ends up in his circle for a while where she never feels entirely comfortable. Then ultimately decides sort of quickly to move back to Nigeria and try to talk to Obinze again. He's gotten married, but they pretty much reignite an affair and ultimately it ends up with him at at her door um basically asking if they can give it a, another shot he's going to divorce his wife probably that's so again there's not a, there's not a ton of plot as i think joel said earlier uh, a lot of what we have here is very sharply observed scenes of like the immigrant experience or of her being back in nigeria after a while and there's a lot of really excellent scenes where a bunch of mostly well-meaning academics sort of embarrass themselves trying to talk around this <laughs> Nigerian immigrant. Uh, and that's, I would say to some extent, those might be my favorite scenes in the books because they're, or the book, because, uh, I don't know, they felt very believable. I have obviously had yeah. never been a African immigrant in a room full of well-meaning American liberals, but I just got to feel like that's right. That's what that feels like. <laughs> 
No, that's actually that. I think that's a good place to start because, in in some ways, uh, in one of those scenes, and I think it's actually Blaine's sister. But you know, basically, Efemelu is a you know not, not accused, but she's told that you know this this very like um, popular blog on race that she has. She's able to kind of talk about that stuff so bluntly. Um, because she's kind of, you know, protected by her own distance. Like, not only can she observe things, like, without it coming back on her, like, no one is necessarily railing at her as an angry black woman in the stereotypical sense, is what this person says. But also, I think that the implication is, like, you also get to just kind of make these observations because you're a little outside of it, right? Um, and I do think the book, you know, it's smart in a lot of different ways, but the way it actually so head-on tackles social issues, I think it gains, it honestly does, it gains a lot from it being the immigrant Nigerian perspective, right? And not because um, the other perspective is less interesting, but because for me as an American audience at least, Adichie, also Efemelu, they kind of get to talk about stuff that like I just haven't heard maybe that succinctly. You know what I mean? Like, I, you know, um, I went to University of Denver and um, I was, you know, kind of friends with, um, she's probably listening, hey. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> my only university friend who I still keep in touch with, um, you know, her parents were from Ethiopia. And so I feel like there's sometimes this really interesting intersection when it comes to like race and class and culture. And what I liked about Adichie's stuff is that she could so clearly put her finger on what makes America culturally unique, but she wasn't using that like, um, that qualification of cultural to kind of lessen how important it is. You know what I mean? Because I think, I think sometimes people, when they talk about cultural issues, they almost want to, like, say, like, well, that was back in the 60s, or that was just, like, that, that's just how the country is. There's not, like, any, you know, they, they almost want to, like, minimize the, the moral stakes of things by saying it's cultural in a weird way, I think. And I think she says, rightly, like, hey, here's how it is cultural, and yet it's cultural in a way that feels natural, which is actually, you know, much more dangerous, because everyone keeps talking to me as if I'm going to get it, and I don't. So that's kind of a little long, longer-winded than I meant to be. But I, I just thought it was a really, like, it was a really useful um, and interesting kind of way to pick apart things you already think you know. Um, and I, and I, think, I, mean, I think it's why she wrote it. I mean, she wrote it, I think, you know, not just for an American audience, but I certainly think she has an American audience in mind. I think that's right. I think one of the things that I think it would be easy to start, and one reason I suspect the book was popular because there's a lot here you can learn, right? There's a lot of these yeah. these sort of didactic blog posts uh, which are excerpted throughout, which are uh, where she sort of says, "Here's sort of my take on a situation." So I think there's a lot you can probably learn in this book if you aren't already aware of it. And you know, there's, a, there's for instance a, a recurring motif about uh, if Emma lose hair, right? Like a lot of the book is actually told in a framing narrative. Right. At the beginning of the book, she goes to a uh, a place to get her hair braided in kind of a dingy neighborhood somewhere in the United States, uh, and it takes a long time, right? It's a long process to get your hair braided if you're a if you've got you know long hair and you're a black woman, right? And so while she's listening to these other people who are all sort of relatively recent immigrants to the United States, bantering with each other or with the various people who walk in, she's thinking about her life, right? So not the whole book, but a lot yeah. of the book is is told in this sort of framing narrative through that. And there are several other scenes throughout the book where she does something you know, does something with her hair, like the first time she really does relax her, and it's just a sort of horrible, painful experience. And she's dating the white boyfriend at the time, and he's just confused and not of much help as she goes through this experience, and then she cuts it very short. And, you know, there's, there's a lot about this going on, which I think can also be, uh, in addition to being a, a meaningful through line, it also teaches you about this sort of thing, right? Because I think if you're, you know, if you're like me, and you're growing up as a white kid in a neighborhood where there weren't a lot of black people, and of course, 
I'm not talking to a lot of women about their hair on a day-to-day basis anyway, right? Right, I think yeah. we can, very easy people like me not to realize, you know, this is a whole thing, right? <laughs> right. And well, this is not I, the book I, that taught I, me that, but it would it would for a lot of folks, I think, right? Well, so <laughs> actually what you just said is, I think I think it's interesting because this book came out in 2013, I think, right? Yeah. Um, and so, I, you know, it's funny because I, I, I've actually noticed in the last decade that, like, you know, black hair has become sort of like this really apt entry point into some of the invisible ways in which culture leans on people oppressively, right? Like it's a really quick way into talking about, hey, here's a casual thing that I actually have to spend a lot of time and money on that you've never even thought about. Like here's the basic difference that, you know, maybe is invisible to um, definitely, you know, white dudes, (laughs) probably (laughs) like us. But, um, but what I, what I, what I, I was curious, you can't track this stuff, I think exactly, but like, I know that, um, a while ago, I think um, Chris Rock actually produced a documentary on hair, just called Hair, and I, I didn't look it up, and I should have. But so I, I, I would, I'm, I guess what I'm curious about, I'm curious how much this book actually ignited some of that awareness, right? I'm curious how much this book maybe made that one of the entry points into talking about kind of, you know, these invisible <laughs> things that, you know, curtail and, you know, and like one person in the book calls it like, I think she calls a you know, calls like non-natural black hair a prison, right? Like the ways yeah. in which you are confined by these, you know, expectations. And I, 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 my, my guess is that if it didn't ignite it, it certainly solidified it in the in the literary community because it is like it is definitely, you know, a, a, a recurring like plot line. To be honest, like what you know, and even even in and again, what's interesting about kind of getting to bridge, you know, the you know the American and the international experience, the Nigerian experience specifically is. The main character, Efemelu, she goes back to Nigeria and she's mad at all the stylists there who want to relax her hair, right? It's like almost like she she came to a more natural understanding of her hair in America and she's mad that like, you know, there's even a line that says like, why don't African stylists want to do my hair naturally? And I thought that was a way in which the book continually, for the most part, never took like I would say easy in the sense of reductive way out, right? Like all of the talk about race, all of the didacticism, it is built into a narrative. Like there's a few points where I think it gets, to be honest, I think it does get too didactic and it becomes a little bit of wish fulfillment. Um, Like the one scene in particular where she takes her white boyfriend to like a bookstore and makes him look through all the white people magazines, you know, and really like literally educates him. I thought the book was doing that better (laughs) in different ways already. And so it was unnecessary for me. But what I liked about the blog is that the blog is inserted into this much more complicated narrative and you hear her thoughts that, you know, kind of like, like the blog often like will tag a more complicated scene than the blog itself yeah. would have represented. And so, but, but it's not that the blog's wrong. I think it's just, you know, she's really committed to like telling a fuller story in which the blog should be listened to. But of course, like no one who writes a blog, at least no one who's sane thinks that it's, you know, it's the end-all, be-all thought. Um, so I went a lot of different places right there. But I, I do feel like her emphasis on hair, it, it must have been part of the reason that became a – I mean, I'm, I'm guessing. I'm, it feels like one of the reasons that that became an elevated point of entry into talking about race, to be honest. Well, that makes sense. I'd, obviously, I don't know exactly what the timeline yeah, is. But, I mean, no, you're right, I 2012, 2013, I feel like around that time I did start to see a lot more popular discussion about black hair and maybe that's just because that's when i started noticing it right but i i would right, i wouldn't yeah. be surprised if this helped thrust that conversation into more of the the mainstream spot mainstream i don't know what mainstream means but you know what i mean 
Yeah. So be- before before we get too into the weeds of, I think this book is explicitly about cultural issues. And so talking about the book, you know, there's no way to like separate necessarily what the characters go through in like a literary sense from the cultural political sense. But I am kind of like, before we get too <laughs> abstracted, which I know is like, that's my big problem with thinking about, oh, I don't know, anything, ice cubes, <laughs> you know, children. Um, I kind of, I'm kind of curious, like, so this is a love story arguably, right? Like, it's much more than that. But, like, I think based on the beginning and ending, the arc of it is sort of a love story. And I'm curious maybe what you thought of it, like, dramatically, narratively, character-wise, like, which characters stood out, kind of just the book club response to it, you know? Yeah, so I I don't know. I wasn't, I guess, as interested in the love story, partly because because we opened the book... most of the book is told in chronological order, but again, there's this framing device, right, where she goes to the to the hair place, and it talks a little about how she got there, right? So we know right. from the beginning of the book that she's going back to Nigeria, and she's tried to reconnect in some way with Obinze, right? And yeah. so there's never really any an open question as you read through the book, like, is she going to give this another shot in some way, even though he's married and, you know, she was in a relationship with no enormous flaws right and the right. answer is of course from like page five like yeah she's gonna do that now whether it works or not i guess is still an open <laughs> question right but we know right. that yes yeah, she's this is how this is going and so there wasn't which is fine right but like the will they or won't they well they will right the question is whether it will stick right That's they're going to try right yeah and i, I found it believable right I, I didn't find it in any way unbelievable but I, I don't know as it was terribly dramatically compelling which i guess is maybe not a criticism of the book because again it's not an open question right it's it so maybe that's fine i uh I think the characters, I mean, I, I, I did like Ephemalu quite a bit. I really enjoyed her. When she made mistakes, I found them to be believable mistakes a person would make, right? And I, I like that, I think Adiche, she's, you know, she's the protagonist. She does get to be right several times, right, when she's giving speeches yeah. or whatever. But I don't think she ever became just a mouthpiece, right? And I think that one of the things I liked about the blog is because, in addition to having moments of just, I think, more or less straight didact- didacticism, is that a word? Didacticism? Didacticness? Didacity? Yeah, didacticism probably, but hmm. don't well, qu- don't quote me. <laughs> in addition to having moments where it's just teaching the audience stuff, uh, <laughs> there's also, uh, yeah, like you said, it'll tag uh, themes or scenes that we've already seen, right? So she'll talk about, I have a friend who's writing this book, and then we either just did or are about to meet the friend, right? And to understand right. this, the thing in her life that caused her to write this blog post. And I, I think she, she keeps her pretty well-rounded in that way. I, I really enjoyed being in her head for most of it. Uh, so she's got an aunt, Auntie Uju, who's about 13 years older than she is and was like the only family member that she liked when she was a baby or whatever, who also moves to the States. She has this uh, son named DK, who Ephemalu knew briefly in Nigeria and then hangs out with a great deal in the United States and watches him kind of grow up. And his struggle with his own self-identity is one of the uh, like C or D plots as well. Ultimately, at one point, he actually tries to kill himself in a particularly dramatic... Tries to take a bunch of Tylenol yeah. and a bunch of um, anti-nausea medication, which, by the way, is not a good idea. Um, no. just, just as a quick note. Um, anyway, he... Uh, so so this, this relationship between the two of them is, is really interesting, and I, I liked those scenes. I thought there was about the right number of scenes with him, right? Because I think unless the whole book was going to be about him, much more would have felt distracting, right? Um, but I thought that the little bits we got with him here or there were... Uh, I thought very effectively done. Um, I enjoyed his his perspective. I I agree, when I, and I think also so his suicide attempt it comes out of nowhere, right? Yeah. I mean, I think like it's it's funny because this is how you know she handled it really well is that um, it's it's the right kind of surprise. It comes out of nowhere, but it doesn't feel convenient, 
You know, it doesn't feel like, oh, I need something to happen. Like, there is some convenience to the moment at which it happens. Um, you know, she's about to go back to Nigeria or whatever. But even that, like, for, like for me, there's some, there's, a, there's some unspoken causations in this book that I think are really smart. I had one earlier that um, I already forgot about. But this one in which, for example, he tries to, you know, her, you know, her cousin, her nephew, basically, who she's quite close with, he tries to kill himself right before she leaves for Nigeria, like, her leaving is never spoken of as a cause. But you must wonder, like, the timing seems, you know, pr pretty coincidental, basically. But I, I but actually, you know what else he, his plotline did, though, to be honest? I feel like she's so good at the compressed stuff. Like, Obenze's scenes often, I think, propelled me through them faster than some of Efemelu's scenes, to be honest. And I think it's because she's really good at compression, and there was some shaggy stuff, I felt like, with um, FMLU, especially getting established in America. Yeah. And I, I really liked her relationship with Kurt, but in some ways it got most interesting right when it ended. <laughs> and then she went back to it in like kind of like a double flashback, and I didn't like when she went back to it. I thought, like, Kurt was done. We're good. But overall, I mean, but, you know, but she is doing, you know, she's doing a lot, like, you know, every book does a lot of neat little tricks, but she's definitely, you know, writing a book about memory because memory is based on identity and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But, um, but the D D DK was a great, he was definitely a great character in and of himself and, a, and another great way to talk about, you know, American black identity. Because there was one blog post, right, that says, like, you know, if you're non-American black, like, stop pretending you're not black in America. <laughs> and yeah. DK kind of is, like, the ultimate proof of that, right? Like, he can do a Nigerian accent. He understands Igbo, you know, his, uh, his mom's native language yada 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 and yet you know he like he's a black american right like that's what he is in a way that you know even um even fmlu's not but yeah anything else stand out to you like just book book wise well that might be what i uh, which other characters really stuck out to you that would be sort of my, my oh yeah that's question. a good transition <laughs> <laughs> um you know i mean he's he's you know he's the second main character but i i really liked obenze i i, I liked i don't mean like you know, it wasn't just that he was likable, although she does build both of her leads to be likable, right? Um, they certainly are meant to be enjoyed and not just observed, I think, um, which I think is more typical in, um, you know, romantic stories, right? Anyway, though, but I, I thought Obenze was, but specifically, like, I, I really liked um, his journey through England, you know, like the ways in which, like, he sees, like, a totally different assimilation process that actually is also kind of the same it just is cultural and i felt like the book was really smart in the way that it kind of triangulated its characters you know like they're looking to england because they're like an anglophone african society but they're looking to america because america is the great you know kind of like overwhelming you know dream of prosperity that infects the world <laughs> um and but I but you know his actual journey in England, it it was quite different than her journey in America because one he was illegal, but I really like that he wasn't an illegal in America, right? Because she kind of gets to talk about how messed up these things are universally, even as they're culturally embedded. You know, um, now see I'm, I'm I'm abstracting again, but I thought Obenze was great. I mean I thought he was really interesting, and just when I thought he was too square or too. Um, predictable she kind of throws a wrinkle in there even at the end where she talks about basically he's so dutiful he's a coward right that like even his strength is a weakness and i thought she just did that really well but i, I will say i mean if i was gonna maybe you know pivot a little bit i'm not sure i like the framing device um at least how i read it 
I agree with you that I don't think the question was, you know, will they give this another go? But it was, the question was like, why did it go wrong? And how will it go right? You know? And so I think there are like, there are two ways to deal with like basically flashback scenarios. There's really one way in some ways. And like, if you, if you have a present narrative and then you leave the present narrative to do a flashback, um, how, for however long, even if it's the entire book, I feel like there has to be a propelling question, or at the very least, there has to be propelling language. And I think she lands more on the language side of things, to be honest, right? Like, she kind of wants you to come along with the journey because she's interesting and charming and insightful, right? Because the question of will they get back together or why did they break up, I not only didn't care about as much as I think maybe she wanted me to, potentially, but I, I actually thought it, it did a little bit of a disservice to, like, how big the book wants to be for me. Like, right? So, like, I, I feel like there's a different version of this book. It starts out from the beginning, to be honest. You know, it starts out with them in Nigeria. And, like, maybe that would be too paint by the numbers. But I could see it, honestly, kind of guiding me better as far as what are the questions and tensions this book is after. And they're really not romantic. You know, like, truthfully, in the end... They're not about, like, Willa Benze and Efemelu find each other again and fall in love. That becomes kind of the latter half of the book, or really the last fourth, third, it's the last fourth or fifth of the book. But I don't know, I, just, I, just, I feel like the framing device did a bit of a disservice to how, how wide she wants the scope to be, you know? And maybe that's not fair, but it just took a while for me to get past that, right? Like, once I was finally past it, it was fine. And it could be, you know, my bad, my taste, my whatever. But I, I did feel like I, you know, it sounds like a cool device, almost Proustian. This, you know, book takes place during her getting her hair braided right in a salon. That's pretty cool. But at the same time, I, yeah, I kind of wanted, I kind of wanted it to like leave its shackles behind from the beginning, if that makes sense. That does make sense. I don't know as I ever, when we hopped back, for another scene and there I, I don't know as i ever thought those were really adding all that much to the to the book i mean yeah i, I wonder if it's partly I, I don't obviously have no idea if this is true this is just a wild guess right but <laughs> on the other hand i can imagine adiche you know in 2009 or whatever when she's going to write this book sitting down and saying hey this is a story which is at least going to be partly about hair right so i should say right. in the salon and then it just never you know what i mean i mean i, I wonder yeah. if that's just an artifact of the genesis of the thing it's certainly not bad, and she doesn't spend a lot of time there. No, you know, it's not it's, a huge it's not, deal. It's just she checks in it sometimes. So, but I guess I agree. I don't know as I ever really felt like that was adding a heck of a lot. It was kind of funny when the white chick showed up and wanted to get her hair dreaded and just had no idea about anything. That was kind of funny. right. But <laughs> well, and I, I do think I you know sometimes I feel like you know I have the the problem of like a readerly concern a readerly concern slowly tips into a writerly concern, right? Like because I'm really interested in wrong-footing readers from the beginning, right? I think that's a thing that, like, I actually think, like, most books kind of do it. You know, most books that aren't thrillers, weirdly enough, thrillers kind of get it right, most books kind of wrong-foot their reader a little bit. Um, like, there's a, a poet and critic I like a lot who does, like, an end-of-year blog on the book she read, um, and she talks about Brandon Taylor's real life, and Brandon Taylor's a really smart guy, really good writer. Um, real life uh, was up for the man Booker, you know, he's like an, you know, he's a, he's a cool guy. And um, she kind of she talked about this, like you know, she says the first chapter does a similar thing. He kind it kind of starts in this like you know, uh, random scene that then jumps away from, and the rest of the book takes place along a different stage of action. 
And I, I just feel like it's a it's a really common thing right now, and I don't know why. <laughs> and I guess, you know, I guess I don't like it. <laughs> That's all I'm really saying. But I also feel like there must be a better solution. Like, I don't know what the solution is, though, because I get why she wants you to, like, have the tension of the future and the past. It just feels like we didn't need it. But it's a long time on one issue. Um, what I also think, so again, the book is Americana, right? It is about this experience of being someone who comes back to Nigeria, right? right. And so I yeah. understand wanting to start the book there rather than just starting with them in Nigeria at the age of 10 or whatever it was when they met. I think they were like 15. You know, I, I guess I understand that to set this up. Hey, this really is what this book is about. So I don't know. I I don't I don't I I think maybe you disliked it more than I did, but I agree that I don't think it really added. added <laughs> well, that again, much. that's what you know. I think I think that's why I say it's probably a writerly concern more than a readerly one. Like I'm not sure I cared about as much as a reader, but I will say that the more readerly reaction I had is also I'm you know I'm always thinking about how to write. But I will ask you, what did you think about the ending? I mean, I'll tip my hand. I, I don't think I like the very last page, to be honest. Like, I'm not sure it's bad. I'm not sure I dislike it. But I'm not sure I was, like, for it. And I was just no, curious how you felt. I I think I agree. I mean, so the last page, so she and Obenze have had, like, an affair. And then at one point, he's like, I got to think about this for a minute. And she cuts him off. She's like, you know, you coward. Uh, and right. ignores his emails and text messages for a while. And then she's got this other sort of very brief fling she's in. She's maybe moving on. And then he basically shows up at her house like six or seven months after this and is like, no, I'm chasing you. This is what I'm doing. Come on. And she invites him into the house. That's the end of the book. Right. And I, on the one hand, I liked that it didn't really say, you know, and then they lived happily ever after. Although I think there was no danger it was going to do that. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, I I liked that. I liked that it ends on a, they're going to give it a shot, but who knows what's happening. I mean, I think that's the right way for your book about immigrant identity and return migration to end, right? But I, I think I agree that to some extent the... It was sort of like, yeah, I mean, I know. You know, I <laughs> I maybe didn't need this. So endings are symbolic, right? You can't help it. Like, endings create meaning, right? Whatever you end with, it just happens to, like, shoot back through the book, I think, and in, in kind of... Based on what the book is, you get a certain certain symbolic reading from it. I just think it happens, like you know, Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, James Patterson, even doesn't whatever, right? There's this way in which it creates meaning, and so. I, but I feel like with this book, for, you know, for me, I feel like she almost got the symbolism not wrong. It's her own book; she knew whatever the heck she pleases. But what it made, what it, like I think the really like generous symbolic reading. Um, and I think one, one, one that's coherent and not bad is that, like, in some ways, even though he's more than this in terms of the ending's meaning, Obenze could kind of be read as, right, her Nigerian past. That's what he literally is for Efemelu, right? And so there's this way in which their complicated getting together represents the complication of her coming home, right? Like, that it's both exactly what she wants, but also, like, it's different. He's got to, like, even if they, like, as, as they try to do, like, they're going to try and make it work. He's got a wife. He's got a kid. He doesn't want to be a bad father. Like, no matter how things go forward, it's complicated, right? And so in that sense, I think it's very intelligent. The symbolism all falls into place. And it almost makes me like the book better. But I, I just, I, 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 when it was when it was heading toward a, an even more open ending, you know? Like, I, what I thought was going to happen was that she was going to kind of, at some point, hear that Obenze was, like, thinking about leaving his wife, right? Which would be almost the same ending. But I liked when... Um, he kind of got reminded of his duty by friends and also like by his wife and 
we see him with his family, and we realize, oh, he's going to destroy some people's lives, you know. I kind of like that he was in this tension, and then I like that she was opening up toward Nigeria that was the future and not just the past, you know. And so I feel like, like symbolically, it wasn't that you had to cut Obenze out, but I, I do feel like, you know, a, a lighter touch might have been truer to what felt like the arc of Efemelu's life, right? That she's back, but also there is an opening up beyond the past, and it's not just a reconnection with the past. Um, not, and again, not that you want to do that. Like, there's better reasons to do that than just the symbolism, but it's hard because, like, endings have meaning. They create meaning. Um, and it wasn't bad. Again, it wasn't bad. I just thought the book was so smart and so sharp in so many other ways. I think sometimes what writers do who are so smart is they say, screw it, I want a happy ending. Like, I, you know, <laughs> I mean, like, I've thought this book through so hard. I want an ending that's a little more concrete. And it, again, she does it well. But, yeah, I just think for me it was like a, a missed opportunity maybe, um, which matters more at the end than elsewhere. I hear what you're saying. I, I do think that the book is still in structure a love story, and I do think that if your last scene doesn't have both of your lovers together, that's a little surprising. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I'm, that's, I like that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I'd have to think about it some more. I think everyone <laughs> should be disappointed, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i i agree like i'm not sure like I, it's possible like this is the thing that about writing a book right and actually i, I just read recently a, a zadie smith um essay people were talking about a long time ago she writes this response to james wood um which the, and it's the only good like author response to a critic ever and she kind of talks about like some of the criticism he made of you know how she was writing and she says look specifically about her first book white teeth Zadie Smith writes, you know, look, uh, when I was 21, I also wanted to write like Kafa. I wish I could have. <laughs> what no one talks about is that, you know, writers write not just what they want to, they write what they can. And when I was 21, yeah, I had the sensibility of a Simpsons story editor more than I did of like a, you know, German literary immigrant character. <laughs> um, and I like that, but I also like it because, you know, books constrain you in a certain ways. And I do think, it, I'm, like, I'm sure, I mean, who knows what she did, but like, Basically, you have to end the book, right? The book does have to have an ending of some kind. And you're right. She's made these two characters equal, basically. I mean, FMLU is definitely the main person. But to not have a Benze in the scene, yeah, it would be hard. It would be hard to pull it off. But I would have liked to see her try, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Okay, I want to circle real real quick back to FMLU because, you know, you said you kind of liked her. She gets to be right a few times. I have a few ideas about this, but don't you basically think, though, that, like, isn't there a reading of this that Efemelu is a terrible person? You know, she's a terrible... She breaks up homes, (laughs) destroys men hearts, you know, like... (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, I mean, she burns Kurt. She she cheats with him. (laughs) She cheats on him, I mean. Um, She, like, you know, I would blame Blaine a little bit, but, like, honestly, she creates the fight with Blaine by lying to him and then blaming him for being mad about her lying to him. And then, you know, she uh, actively, actively gets Obenze to cheat, right? Like, he's trying to take it easy to figure out what's going on, and she's like, buddy, come inside. Are you an idiot? Like, isn't there a reading of this where she's sort of like, like, didn't Adichie kind of do the, like, do the thing everyone's always talking about, where she, like, has, you know, kind of a bad behavior, likable female protagonist, you know? I mean, like, I feel like everyone, I, everyone's always, yeah, go ahead. I, I think you're not wrong. I mean, she certainly uh, the, she certainly makes a number of mistakes or perplexing choices, and the book is not, I think, confused about that. 
Um, no, I, no. I, I, I kind of, I mean, I, I liked the honesty of her situation when she's with Obinze at the end, right? Like, she, she comes back to town, to town, she comes back to Nigeria, <laughs> and is there for like three or four months or something, some significant period That's, of time before yeah. she looks him up. And then she's just more or less like, <laughs> they're, they're hanging out, and he, I guess they end up kissing, and it's unclear exactly who starts it, right? And her next line is just like, I don't have any condoms. And he's just like, I, do we need condoms for lunch? You know? <laughs> Which was very yeah. good. Uh, uh. No, she's great. That's what I mean. It's like she's so likable while doing I mean, what are putatively, like, not great things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree. I mean, she definitely – I don't think I would say she's an antihero. I mean, I guess you're right to the extent that she's the – the likable female character who sort of is badly behaved that we're always saying we need more of in fiction. I think she is a good example of that. I think most of her situations are a little more complicated than just that. But, I mean, yeah. I do, like, There's not really yeah. a very good reason for her to cheat on Kurt. Like, it's not like... I mean, he, he has this sort of bad flirtation with this woman at one point, and he's definitely makes a number of mistakes, but it's not like... There's a, I, don't th- I don't think anyone could say that was a particularly good thing for her to do. And I don't think she thinks it is either. She just kind of does well, it no, and, she's and, acting out. <laughs> and her, her humanness always comes through, right? So, like, she yeah. cheats on Kurt. And she and I, and I actually, that was one of the parts I liked a lot, where Adichie kind of walks through, like, it wasn't a big decision. There wasn't some big reason behind it. Like, even in retrospect later, when she maybe talks about how it was hard to have a white boyfriend. And she talks about it after the relationship's over because it didn't occur to her during the relationship in some ways that it was maybe building up some of these tensions and difficulties. But I think that she always finds a way to, like, you know, to, to make it complicated on both sides. So, like, she, she ends up cheating on Kurt. And it's, it's sort of, like, not from any big, huge despair or anger or anything, right? It's, like, just an idea she has. And so she does it. And I, and I like that. And I, I like, too, actually, honestly, like, a lot of the characters' choices, they're not mysterious, um, but I do think they're kind of embedded in these, like, you know, in philosophy you'd call them, like, drives, right? Like, these things that are pushing you, and you almost don't know why. And I think she really does a great job describing how that feels, right? Describing how it feels to, like, you know, as a reader, you have all the context to say, oh, here's what happened, maybe. But the characters themselves are constantly like, yeah, I mean, I get, like, you know, like, her friend accuses her of being a, you know, you're a self-sabotager, and she rejects the idea, even as... The friend is probably correct, but that's not. But that's not what it feels like to be a self sabotager. You know, you don't wake up. You don't wake up and you say, "Ah, I should break my life today." You know, you just end up. You just end up doing it, and it, and for usually really petty reasons, as far as the you know acute moment of decision. One thing I liked about this book is it is also, I think, without it being the main thing the book is about, I think it makes a lot of sense as a very good portrayal of depression too. The book is very yeah. clear throughout that if Emmalou has some form of depression, and I think, and you mar- marked this in the notes, this is partly, you know, a, a cause of her sort of situation, sort of a the Mark Fisher capitalist realism point. This is Joel's idea. I'm stealing it from Joel. Joel wrote it. I no, no. This but is... yeah, that's, uh, I think that there's a lot of truth to that, you know, and there's a lot of jokes throughout about, you know, the, the Nigerian saying, oh, you go to America and you get diagnosed with some kind of anxiety disorder. That just, it's just insane. That doesn't, that's, it's just the Americans being it insane. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't exist in Nigeria. Yeah, we just, that doesn't happen there, which of course is not. And I think she threads that needle right of being both, A, well, that's just not true, right? People have depression everywhere. Right. And also, of course, there is something unique about this immigrant to American experience, which also exacerbates or causes problems too, right? Um, right. And I, so, and the book talks several times about how she clearly does have depression, although she never really, seeks therapy for it or anything like that at one point she resigns from a job because it seems like the thing she has to do which is uh yes that's exactly what that feels like (laughs) (laughs) 
I have done yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> no, I've done that too, actually. <laughs> and uh, I, so I think it's a very good portrayal of, of depression uh, without being too, I think, it's, it's not shy about it, but it's also not like hitting you over the head. With, I, I don't know. I think she did a very good job threading that needle, I guess is what I'm trying to say, of being very clear that's what was going on without being unsubtle. <laughs> well, no, again, I mean, um, so so Blaine is her um, academic boyfriend at the end. His sister's name is... Shan. Shan? Yeah. <laughs> okay, Shan. And uh, and Shan becomes important because she's like a slight foil to a lot of FMLU's, you know, journey. Like, not, not foil, but, you know, she basically becomes like this really convenient way of getting other ideas in the text. And, and she's really entertaining, so it's a great way to do it. Between her, who, she's depressed, right? She's special, but she's fragile. And then DK, who tries to commit suicide, I think you do. You have this kind of recurring theme of, like, very different types of personalities keep falling prey to a certain kind of, like, mental breakdown. Um, but, like, as Shan points out as well, though, like, um, and she's a little, she's a little, I think she's a little wrong when she says, basically, FMLU's identity allows her to be insightful because, it, you know, it still takes wisdom to be insightful, right? And I think one of this book's ins- insights is that Adiche recognizes her unique position as insider, outsider, you know, to, I think, lampoon things which she also finds useful. So I think she actually does find the, the clinical obsession in America, FMLU, if not Adiche, I think she does find it a little ridiculous, right? There's a way in which, like, are we creating problems to, like, you know, to kind of keep, I don't know, a certain system of living going, right? That, like, there's a certain consumer, I think, mindset to mental health sometimes, basically. She doesn't go there, right? She doesn't go there explicitly. But the the threading the needle part is that she is partly lampooning it even as she's endorsing it. And that is hard to do if you're just on the inside, right? Like... But I, yeah, the, dep- the definitely this is a book about depression, and I, I think that that's an interesting way to read it, especially in light of Deacon, especially in light of, you know, when Deacon tries to kill himself. Like, again, there's this doubling, right? Like, Fmelu talks about this is because of his experience as a black, you know, kid in America, and DK's mom, Auntie or Auntie Uju, says, "Look, I'm a pediatrician. Like, you know, I have three or four white kids who try to kill themselves this year. Like, depression happens." Yeah. So once again, you have this doubling, right? Like, it's America, it's blackness. It's also just like it's also just your brain sometimes, you know. I don't know. I, I, yeah. So I'm kind of just saying what you're saying in more detail, but I did like it a lot because I feel like whenever she reached for a really solid answer, she also put another solid answer right next to it, and you kind of had to live with both, which I think is what fiction's supposed to do. I want to talk about the blog some more. Okay, let's do it <laughs> for a couple reasons. One, because so the book is set. Most of the blogging times <laughs> is happening around 2008, right? Somewhere around there. She, yeah. she, she, she doesn't give exact deadline. I think you probably could hack out an exact timeline, but I didn't do that. Uh, but generally, because there's a lot of stuff about the election of Barack Obama in 2008. Um, there's a lot of stuff going around around there. So around that's around when she's blogging, which is also the real highlight of that kind of <laughs> blogging, right? Uh, right. you, you can't do that anymore. That particular kind of, I'm going to write a blog, it's going to pay my bills for a while through advertising and speaking fees, it doesn't exist anymore. So I was blogging, sort of, a little bit after that, right? So yeah. I started my little tiny video game blog in 2010, and I, it really wasn't very much like a blog pretty fast. It became sort of a group thing. I was trying to be Grantland, which of course was dumb because even Grantland right. couldn't survive. But that's what I was basically trying for, was Grantland for video games. Uh, anyway, and, but so I was at least sort of adjacent to some of this, the real blogging scene, right? 
And one yeah. thing I really enjoyed about the book is I really feel like she nailed what that felt like very well. I don't know if she had a blog. I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> or at least not. A, I don't not think a she did one. either. Yeah. But uh, it really feels like she got that right. I mean, obviously, I did not have a very successful blog, uh, so I don't know what that experience was like. But that sort of weird you know, this is your corner, this is the thing you write about. I thought that the, the syntax and the um, the diction she chooses for the blog posts all felt exactly right. You yeah, know? She, she nailed it. This sort of mix between academic language and, like, jokes and then, like, weird little, like, product endorsements, essentially, right? Because, like, a couple times commenters will ask our we'll ask her about like what kind of stuff she uses for her skincare routine or like for her hair right which of course is all tied up with everything else and makes a lot of sense so she'll say well i usually get this specific thing right um i felt it felt so very correct for that era of blogging which like i said is is dead i mean shakesville closed down a couple years ago can you believe that shakesville i know i know (laughs) Um, it's all Substack, bill yeah i mean i think mate to some extent it feels like it's coming back a bit with newsletters and Substack, but it's still different I, it's also kind of funny. I've been writing a uh, like a weekly. Here's some thoughts about the books I read this week thing, which I guess I'm calling a book blog. Um, and something about this is kind of funny because it's on WordPress, right? Which I've had this WordPress site for a while, but I mostly use it. I don't use it that much, right? Like I, I was right. doing my one other little project. But something about the tags I'm using or whatever are it's it's popping up on other people's WordPress dashboards. Not like a lot of people, right? But I've picked up a few random WordPress followers now who are like like some of my posts occasionally, <laughs> and it, it's kind of funny because that's what it felt like in 2010 on Blogspot. Yeah, it's like so a throwback. I've, I've been thinking about this uh, experience a bit lately, and I was not really expecting this book to be about blogging, and it, it isn't. But I think she did a really good job nailing that experience and that that feeling. Particularly because uh, the blog is is pseudon- pseudonymous. No, it's anonymous. Yeah, she's just like the non-American black or whatever, I think is what she calls it. Right. Well, and there's like a debate. Like, is she from the Caribbean or yeah. is she from Africa? Is she African or is she Caribbean? Yeah. Uh, and that's also the truth. There were all these like super important bloggers that nobody actually quite knew who they were. And it probably wouldn't have been that hard to find out, right? Well, and, I mean, Scott Alexander, right? Like, that, like he's, he's like the last man standing. Yeah, like the right? last blogger. Yeah, Scott Alexander. <laughs> Have we talked about that New York Times piece and how bad it was? This is totally <laughs> off topic. We shouldn't. No, we we didn't. But I, I mean, I, and I, I actually haven't fo- followed um, Scott Alexander that much. But I, a few people I really trust wrote about it, and they come from very different angles, and they they just ripped it apart. And I read the New York Times article, and I didn't like it from just like a writing perspective and the tone perspective and whatever else, but. Um, Alan Jacobs and you know a few other guys who are like much you know, different than Alan Jacobs. They just they hated it, which I thought was funny because when you when you can unite people across like the intellectual sphere of conservative Christian to like anarchist you know polygamy, <laughs> like when you unite them, you've done something special. I think. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's really an impressively bad piece. Uh, it's, yeah, this, this is obviously we're not going to talk about this in the podcast, but I just no, uh, it's not every day that like you say everybody you know, everyone disliked that as the fallout like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. Call it notification <laughs> that they're using as a meme. That's exactly right. Like, this was just bad work. <laughs> anyway. But, yeah, Scott Alexander is the last blogger. That might be true. Um, but, I, but, you know, but, but well, and so it's funny because I, I hadn't thought about my own experience as maybe, like, blindly confirming what she was doing. Because I, I copy edited you, edited for you for a little yeah. bit, right? And so I had some, like, behind the scenes, you know, look at blogging and whatever. Um, but what she really got right for me, even as just like a writer in general, is I loved when she talked about Afamelu's like um, her 
anxiety about posting to all of these smarter commentators, <laughs> you know? Because, like, I kind of get that when, like, as soon as you put something in the world, that's that's when you're immediately aware of all of its weaknesses, right? Yep. And if you put it in the right corner and you have people who follow you on Twitter or follow you wherever, it's like, oh, this person who I know is smarter than me is reading this thing, and I guess they're not going to form an opinion about me, someone who's an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And so I, I just love that part even like, which is, you know, maybe a little more general, but I also think, I mean, again, I kind of took it for granted that she does do really great, like mixing the blog up. Like you said, like she does this like edit update or whatever. Right. And she, you know, um, she has different lengths of blogs. Yeah. I, that was really good. So anyway, I just, I, I enjoyed that again as, as, as accurately capturing an experience I knew at least a little bit about one, one thing I want to talk about this. Let's see if I can do this right. I always feel, so I also just read last week, Victor Laval's first book of short stories, Slapboxing with Jesus. Yeah. Which is 12 short stories about, basically all of them are about growing up as a young black man in Queens, right? Um, right. I think they might literally all be about that. There's one or two maybe where it's another borough, right? But it's all it's all pretty much what they're about. And uh, I always feel funny when I read one of these books that's like very based in reality. Like s- several of the stories, uh, Laval's stories are based on this, this same character who is very clearly a stand-in for Laval himself, right? They're both growing up in the same, not just, you know, the same part of Queens, and they both, you know, their moms are both from Uganda, but they grew up in the U.S. and so on and so forth. So, like, whenever I read something like this, I always feel funny because I I don't feel like I'm supposed to learn something from it, right? Like, this is partly out there to sort of explain an experience, right? Right, But I always realize that, like, man, I just, I have no way to check this. Does that make make sense? (laughs) Well, not not that I think they're lying to me. I don't mean that. But, like... No, that's true. You know, if I read one of these fictional narratives about what it's like to be an ex, I'm just kind of... Like, I gotta be careful, because, like, I don't still know what it's like to be an ex, right? I'm just... This is just what they thought it was. And it's a really weird kind of experience with this kind of fiction, which is so heavily rooted in a real experience, is I think that people read these books... I guess I worry to what extent, you know, clueless white people like me read these books and come away thinking they know a thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. That no, I, that's where I thought you were going. I totally agree. Well, because it's this kind of difficult, almost again, double effect where the books, I think, I think the books want to put you in the shoes of the people you're reading about, right? Like, especially this book, like we talked about, like it's about people who are likable, who are in love. I mean, in some ways it's very, I've said it before, it reminds me of Franzen's Freedom, but also to the extent that like Franzen's Freedom and this book, they're also both very old fashioned, right? Like they're not like in there. And like this book has a whole rant about <laughs> current American fiction, which we should talk about in a second. But I think they're like, they're consciously inviting you in, but they're definitely not inviting you to like, um, I mean, this word's become so loaded from a lot of, I think, dumb debates, but they're not they're not inviting you to appropriate it, right? They're not yeah. inviting you to, to internalize it in the sense of like, ah, uh, yes, let me tell you about Nigerian Americans. <laughs> it's like, yeah. no, 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 that's not, really that wasn't that the lesson, <laughs> that wasn't yeah. the lesson. <laughs> Um, but it is, yeah. But but I think it's that's but that's in some ways. I mean, you know, that's that's the beauty and the danger of of this kind of stuff, right? Is you you put something in the world and people misuse it. But if it's good enough, like you know, basically the best stuff is what you misuse, right? Uh, not always, but you know, people like it so much they they over identify and then they're, they're emailing you about like I, you know, I also had this experience when I was one time mistaken for being Hispanic in Alabama. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, no, no, <laughs> again, that's, stop. That's probably not it. Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, that's that's really funny. I do. Um, I, I will go on record as saying I, I don't I don't like the title "Slapboxing with Jesus." Um, it's a I'm quote a f- from um, I think a Ghostface Killer song. I think 
Yeah, actually, I think I, I didn't know that at some point. And it, it's a great it's a great line. I think there's, there's something there's just like too many syllables going on or something. Um, well, I honestly didn't like the short story collection very much <laughs> as I I wrote. That. I don't right. want to be a jerk about it. They're not bad. One one final thought about the blog before we probably move on is I do think the other smart way she used it, which we've talked about already that I think like, I guess maybe I didn't say this. I was very skeptical of her including the actual blog posts when they started, to be honest. N- not because like I'm against that kind of mixed media stuff. Like uh, my teacher at Syracuse, Dana Spiota, she does something like this with internet comments in her book, um, The Innocence. And it's really, you know, it's, it's always like, I think it needs to be done to some extent, right? Like we're all writing on the internet, you know, shoving it together is smart. Anyway, but like I, I, I was worried about, truthfully, I was worried about the didactic elements. You know, not that um, she would be wrong about anything, but like I do think different media have different strengths. And I think narrative fiction is not supposed to be an essay, you know? I mean, like Tolstoy basically argues against me in war and peace and i love that book so you can do whatever the hell you want you know like whatever (laughs) um (laughs) but but actually i i do think she finds ways not only to juxtapose the blog so it becomes interesting which we talked about but one of my favorite moments was you know it's one of the academic parties right she's with blaine and his academic friends she never quite fits in with them and it's one more way in which she's kind of slicing apart the nuances of identity because um, Blaine used to date this woman, Paula, who is still in the group. They're still friends. She's white, but she's a progressive academic. And so in this kind of bizarre way, she has access to Blaine's opinions and experiences in a sense that, you know, Ifemelu just can't compete with. Like, they're on the same page about even, like, black American life <laughs> in a way that Ifemelu is not necessarily on the same page. You know, like, it's, it was, I thought it was really smart. And one of the ways, you know, she kind of gets the blog in there is, you know, they talk about how much they like her blog, The Academics, and Paula, the ex, reads it. And I thought, like, again, she didn't, she didn't, it wasn't ham-handed. She didn't talk about, like, is it weird that this white woman is kind of reading these words and talking about how smart they are and kind of being an authority on it. Like, she didn't go into that as, like, a big deal. I don't think she thought it was a big deal, but it was a really, like, dynamic interpersonal scene, you know? Like, it's a lot of different stressors in one moment, all around the blog, and she kind of kept doing that, you know, like, at one point, Ethamelu offers Shan, Blaine's sister, who's also, like, an author of sorts, she's like, hey, maybe, maybe you can come, like, you know, guest blog if you want to, and she realizes that, like, oh, I shouldn't have said that, you know, like, I don't know, it was just, it was well, it was, like, well, it was, you know, it was well used beyond, like, its initial introduction, and I think an example, actually, of Sometimes excess is the answer, right? You introduce this thing, but actually, if you if you if you kind of like never leave it alone, it gains a certain a certain traction and a certain complexity that one you know a single introduction would have just made it pretty bland. Well, I think that's right. I think one blog post would have been wrong, right? Because none of the blog posts themselves are really all that interesting in and of themselves. But I think twelve or whatever we got was even if they were yeah. just tags every single time. You know, because like, at one point she quotes a, she quotes her own blog at a party. Um, and then Paula reads it at a party, and, like, you know, it just it, it, she kind of finds a few wrinkles, which, again, it's, like, it seems obvious, but I think that it's, it's actually really smart. You know, it's really a subtle way to change up the form. Maybe we should, um, I don't want to leave behind anything too big yet, um, but I think both of us thought that she had a lot of good, like, one-liners or satirical points. And I, I don't think we're at the point yet where, you, like, we just, like, sale of our favorite lines but i i do think she clearly has a satirical you know bend or bent um to what she's doing in in certain parts and i and some of them i love my favorite one 
that I'm going to like tattoo on my lower back is um, <laughs> academics were not intellectuals. They were not curious. <laughs> you know, like when FMA Lou's basically riffing on her frustration with academics, she says that. And I was like, that is exactly what I feel about so many academics is they're not curious. Um, but she does it again and again. And I don't know if, if any stood out to you or any, any ones that you wanted to like talk about maybe. I don't know if I had a specific line from those sequences, but there's there's a couple, two or three times there will be a, and it's mostly with Ifemelu, but it's at least once with uh, Obinze as well, where you'll you'll see all of these people who are at some party and they all get along and are more or less at least portrayed, or at least seem to the the point of view character as like a unit, right? And then we have our character who is not, right? Who is invited as a friend yeah. of a friend or something like that. And then they all get to talking about stuff often it's in it's in some way inspired by or about um africa or you know if or abinze being from africa and so on and she'll just basically just do lines of dialogue without really anything else going on right yeah uh, which she doesn't do too much in the rest of the book right she she tends to have more narration i guess but you'll have these scenes which is just basically a transcript of their conversation and i think she does just a great job of satirizing i guess these people without making them feel inhuman right like it's not like she she doesn't overdo it <laughs> yeah. right but i think it's just a very good these sort of like just incredible foot in mouth stuff people will say uh <laughs> and while they think they're being insightful and so on and how just completely upside down our protagonist feels in this conversation and like and also they'll always be wanting to like impress her or get her on their side or show that they're on her side and then she'll have an opinion which doesn't quite line up with what they think right she should think and they just have no idea how to respond like at one point, another woman who had been in an interracial relationship said something like, race was never an issue in, in my relationship. And if Emily says, that's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I know. That's just I know. Not what I, I did, that was, again, a good example of Emily's type of honesty. Because she didn't just say, I disagree. She says, that's a lie, <laughs> which is so much harsher than saying, I don't agree with that. Well, because, yeah, um, she could have said, well, I don't know. When I wasn't in an interracial, inter, interracial, right. interracial relationship, it was tough. No, she doesn't say that. She's like, bullshit. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, it's also I, so. What what you just got me thinking about was this is a book that has like a ton of characters, right? There are so yeah. many characters, both in America and Nigeria, that I just lost track of. I didn't like totally lose track of them. And she's good about you know she's good about tagging who they are, basically. You know, uh, my yeah. friend from my cousin from you know whatever. Um, but I I love that at some point it becomes like a especially among the academics. Like they're sort of self-consciously types, right? So um, she meets she meets Grace, who I think is Korean American, and Grace says, "Ah, oh, you know, I'm that rare thing, an actual like uh, Christian left-wing nut." <laughs> I just <laughs> I loved it because one, I think sometimes books feel like, or people writing books feel like they're not supposed to make characters types, but actually, I think the way we experience the world is especially when you're meeting new people, yeah. what you first do is you type them. And then as you get to know them, they expand into these wonderful, mysterious beings that everyone sort of is. But especially in a book where there are so many characters, like some characters can only be typed. There's not enough for us, not enough real estate for us to get inside Grace's head and find out what it means to be a left-wing Christian, you know, or whatever, but she does a great job of like introducing so many different types that it's sort of like always entertaining to see her basically bounce off of someone else. Like so, um, uh, a, Senegal a Senegalese 
immigrant comes and teaches at Yale, right? And uh, he's like a francophone African, and they like form a bond. But he, you know, she also teases him <laughs> about like how anglophone Africans are so much more, you know, thick-skinned or whatever. Um, and again, like it was just like you know, like in some ways, like throw a bunch of types at your interesting protagonist is not a terrible way to write a social satire scene. You know what I mean? Like it's pretty, it's pretty good actually. Um, and I thought she did a good job in, in Nigeria as well. I don't know the types in Nigeria, you know, like I do in America, but she seemed to consistently find a different type of person to like bounce off. And not just so that you've got an idea of the society, but actually you kind of do because she forces so many different types in there, which I thought was really, you know, was really fun, if not smart. You know, I mean, it was smart, but like it wasn't just smart. It was also a lot of fun, I thought. Okay, so I think one of the things that I've already referenced that I wanted to talk about was Shan, Blaine's sister, goes on this kind of, she goes on several rants, actually, about what it means to try and write in America, especially about racial issues, which, of course, is pertinent to the book, because I think, you know, I don't think there's a one-to-one, actually, um, relationship here between Shan's ideas and Aditya's ideas, but I, I do think, you know, she makes this much real estate that for them for a reason, right? Yeah. I think this is a bit of a re- rebuke to anyone who's preparing to dismiss this book for some of its more didactic, didactic moments. Um, Shan says, if you write about how people are really affected by race, it'll be too obvious, the editors say. Black writers who do literary fiction in this country, all three of them, <laughs> not the 10,000 who write those bullshit ghetto books with bright covers have two choices. They can do precarious or they can do pretentious. When you do neither, nobody knows what to do with you. So if you're going to write about race, you have to make sure it's so lyrical and subtle that the reader who doesn't read between the lines won't even know it's about race. You know, and then she says, or just be a white writer. And she has this funny, this great throwaway line. <laughs> and she says, you can't even read American fiction to get a sense of how actual life is lived these days. You read American fiction to learn about dysfunctional white folk doing things that are weird to normal white folks. <laughs> Which, um, it's kind of a two-parter, right? One about what it means to try and be a black writer in America, and one dismissively but hysterically and maybe aptly summing up a lot of the literary scene. Um, and I, I just, I don't know, like, I, I feel like a, it wasn't just like meta joy. I just really liked it. It was funny, like it made Shan more of a character. And um, I thought I had more to say, but I think part of me is just like, in some ways, cosign. Like, even my own fiction, I feel like sometimes is like, oh, this is just weird stuff happening to otherwise normal people, you know? Like, this is, <laughs> this is not, <laughs> like, this is not, like, it's reality, but it's like the most extreme, unlikely parts of reality. Um, and I do think it's a harder book to write. Like, what she sets out to do is write about basically middle class people. Um, whose problems are very dynamic. We talked about that, you know, it wasn't quite sexual assault, but essentially the kind of half prostitution, half assault scene, it being so unsettling. And yet, like, the problems don't ever, like, that's the biggest problem in some ways. I mean, Abenze has some stuff, but, you know, the range of crazy things happening is pretty limited in some ways. Um, And I think that is maybe a harder task, right, to write about life, realistically anyway i just like that that was maybe just maybe maybe that's too much of a a digression but i really like that and i really made me think about how hard it is to write a book that tries to limit itself you know consciously limit itself to the plausible in a way that is you know maybe not something i I think to do myself all the time one thing that reminded me of is actually something else dj wrote uh, which is a short story from that collection i read a few years ago that i think i've already talked about Short story is called Jumping Monkey Hill, 
And it is about a writer's workshop, like basically a Pan-African writer's workshop that this character goes to uh, at this like resort or something called Jumping Monkey Hill. And she has questions about that. Uh, and right. the, the, the short story feels very cathartic uh, because what it basically <laughs> is is all of these African writers working on short stories or whatever while some like white dude is critiquing them and is being sort of weird at them the whole time. And the main and, and all the all the all the writers, by the way, are, are usually identified as the Kenyan, the Senegalese, the ah. you know, the Ugandan, right? Which is very yes. smart. Uh, I, I mean, I've never been at a Pan African writing workshop, but I can imagine, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and our main character writes this story where, among other things, this female protagonist is sort of in. It's been a while since I've read the story, so I'm not going to get the details. But she's in this kind of strange abusive sort of subservient quasi prostitution kind of relationship with somebody and eventually she ends up quitting and giving like a rant and and leaving right and they're critiquing the story and they're saying stuff like i just don't believe she would do this like come on this isn't believable this isn't right and the story it's like the story the adichie story jumping monkey hill ends with her the last line of that story is the only thing I didn't add in the story is that after I left my coworker and walked out of the Alhaji's house, I got into the Jeep and insisted that the driver take me home because I knew it was the last time I would be riding in it. There were other things Ujunwa wanted to say, but she did not say them. There were tears crowding up in her eyes, but she did not let them out. She was looking forward to calling her mother, and as she walked back to her cabin, she wondered whether this ending in a story would be considered plausible. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Which is great, you know, for the record. Uh, it is... <laughs> Well, it is funny though. Actually, that so that actually did basically happen to me um, in a community workshop before I went to Syracuse. I wrote some stuff about my, you know, my crazy family. My, my immediate, not actually crazy, but like we've, you know, we've, we've done some things. And um, I remember like He's, that. Joel talking about the yeah, murders I'm, that they've done. I am talking about the murders we've done. To be in about a few years, you'll hear about the Cuthbertson family <laughs> murders. It'll be it'll be cool. Oh, you'll never hear about it, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it's like, you know, there was like, it was like some crazy hillbilly stuff we used to do. Like I have family have gone to, mil- you know, military and there was like, there was like one story in particular that kind of combined that stuff. And literally it was like an hour of people talking about how they didn't believe any of the events. And I remember being frustrated because like, that's like, even if, like, even if it didn't happen, like, that's not the problem of the story. The story is that, like, you didn't tell the events well. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like you can do anything you want to in a, in a story. So, but I do, it is funny because I remember, like, I actually remember, I think at one point I said, to, like, to change the conversation, I was like, well, actually, that's true. I just don't know how to talk about it, I guess. I think this connects to all of these things about, like, plausibility and also types, like you were saying earlier, right? Like, there's Shan talks a lot about how well they want you to add nuance. Is this really what happened when your mother was fired? Was it really just because right. of race? And Shan's like, well, I think so. Yeah, I think that's what happened. Was that was why? I mean, I don't know, but that's what mom thought at least, right? And right. I, I think this has got to be one of the hard things about writing this kind of fiction is sometimes things happen in the real world that are traumatic or significant and also very boring, right? Like sometimes your girlfriend just cheats on you with your best friend and that's what happened and it's not really that yeah, complicated that's it. and it's just a thing that occurred you know <laughs> and and then you obviously want to write fiction about it because it was this very important thing in your life but you realize it's very boring right it's not actually you know it's very sort yes. of trite but it's a real thing that happened and i think about that rebecca west quote about sometimes meeting people in your life who appear to be insufficiently characterized right uh <laughs> which, which <laughs> connects to your bit about types right like sometimes you just meet the person who is just is in their heart of hearts a fully you know a real human being and is 
you know, is surely complex. But in every interaction you're ever going to have with this person, this person is a non-person character, non-player character. You know what I mean? Yeah. This player, to you, is, yes. This, yeah. This person is is a caricature of some kind, and you are never going to get anywhere else with this person. And sometimes that person ends up actually being important in some way in your life, and you're like, yeah, but. And so you know, you, you try to write fiction like this, and in fiction you have to make everything more nuanced and more complex because otherwise it's boring. But of course, in real life, sometimes people are just boring and awful. And, <laughs> and this has got to be you know, the real experience of this is that it's boring and awful sometimes. Like, yep, this person is not an original racist. He is not in some way interesting to talk about. He's just crappy. And he made my life hell for three years. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> and yes. that is the real experience of being this kind of person right now. And how do I write about that in a way that is interesting? <laughs> I don't know. Like, that's that's the kind of questions that one of, one, some of the questions Shan was talking about, which I thought of both in terms of this other Adiche story and also just in life in general. And again, thinking a bit about because these Victor Laval stories I read. I think so. I have, t- I have two thoughts. And the first thought is that, um, you know, I, th- I think when she's typing people, and at one point, uh, her coworker, when she goes back to Nigeria, tells FMA Lou that, like, you know, you're very judgmental. Like, not only is Adiche typing people, but, of course, what I mean is that FMA Lou is typing people, right? She's stereotyping yeah. them. She's whatever. And, she's again, she's the protagonist. We usually agree with her, right? Like, we're seeing everything through yeah. her eyes. People do seem boring or interesting based on whether she thinks they're boring or interesting for the most part. But so one of these characters, though, who is importantly sort of – cardboard-esque is um, Obenze's wife. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting because she does take a scene at the end of the novel to make it clear that, like, this woman knows that she's putting on a show, basically, right? Like, so Benze tells her, I'm going to leave you. I love someone else. And she stops him, right? She, like, puts her palm up and she stops him. And we don't see her depth, but we can see, like, the levels to which she needs control. You know what I mean? Like, she wasn't necessarily filled out as a character. But what what, what also struck me, though, was um, this really intelligent way that uh, Adiche let Obenze at one point say, you know, it's nice to talk to someone who thinks again, or something like that, right? And Ethamelu yeah. F- thinks, is he talking about his wife? Is he, like, dissing his wife? Why would he do that? Why did he marry her? And then why would he diss her to me, like... It was like a cool. It was a cool moment of like how that kind of I think f- how those feelings work, right? Like you know you're interested in someone, but how they talk about their wife matters, <laughs> weirdly. But also what I liked though is it also clarified the way in which of like all the other things this novel is. It is also a book about caring about the life of the mind. In some ways, it's not. Yeah. It's not just about that. But you know, FMA Lee becomes basically she becomes into herself as a writer. Right, as someone who's not an academic, but she must think of herself as some kind of intellectual, because I think that line about you know <laughs> academics aren't intellectuals; they're not curious enough. Like that is, of course, a defense of herself, you know. And Obenze, like one of the things they talk about immediately are the books that she reads, and his mom's a professor, and you know they disagree on the books of Graham Greene or whatever. And I I kind of resonated with that on multiple levels, which is that like when you have this kind of nerdy upbringing in any context and you're among nerdy friends and then you're launched into the world, at some point, part of what your adult life is is trying to figure out a balance that allows you to still live out that life of the mind, right? Like that is and still, that's like one of the things you're trying to do with your life is get it to a place where you can keep, you know, being a nerd, basically. Um, 
And I thought that was, I don't know, I thought that was just another interesting wrinkle to, like, this, like, endless layers of identity, right? That, like, one of their connections, you know, it's, like, it's not just any Nigerian that she wants to be with, of course, you know, it's, it's Obenze, and it's for a lot of these reasons of their connection that is, you know, like, they have this great sex, whatever, but they talk about, like, the sex is the same as it is with other people, we're just in love, you know, I, I, actually, that's about kissing at the beginning, but, like, right, like, the physicality comes from the passion, um, the connection. But anyway, so yeah, my other thought, since I'm already talking too long, my other thought is actually, you know, it's kind of become a classic anecdote that he he pulls out now and then for, like, interviews, but George Saunders had this this great little, you know, coming into his own uh, as a writer story, right? He gets his MFA in his, like, late 20s or so, maybe, like, mid-20s almost even, and then he doesn't really make it for, like, 13 years, you know? And when he does make it, it's sort of overnight, but he talks about, like, he was an engineering major, he, like, worked for some oil and gas companies, I think, and he, like, went, like, to India and, you know, saw kind of, like, the devastations of capitalism up close. And then he experienced them in a personal way when he was kind of, like, just working these, like, crushing jobs with two daughters and they couldn't make ends meet all the time and yada, yada, yada. And so he kept trying to write these, like, Hemingway-esque sad stories, you know, like, I sat by a river and thought about my life, you know, whatever. Um, and he... And I think what, what I'm getting at is, like, he had, to, he had to write about something totally different for all of that meaning to arise. He ends up writing about crazy theme parks. And, his, but I, and what I think is what I'm getting at with here is, like, I think a, a DJ is almost giving a response to writers who think you have to do what George does, right? They think you have to transpose it in some way. And even though she's always – you always have to transpose real life – but I think, you know, she's doing what a lot of realistic writers do, which Franzen does as well, is she's saying basically, like, stop being so cute and just tell me what happened. And I, I don't know, I just, I, I like that discussion because I, I think that it comes back to, again, like, what your strengths are. But also, like, I don't read a lot of books, to be honest. As much as I read literary, literary fiction, I've come to realize I don't, read, I don't read a lot of, like, straightforward literary fiction, you know, like... Like, this book kept reminding me of Freedom by Franzen because in some ways they're both just these, like, you know, um, straightforward realism, world-building even, and I don't always need the world built for me. Like, I live in it, you know? Yeah. Um, but, at, but at the same time, like, I guess I found it in some ways a challenge even about, like, you know, what are you sidestepping as a reader and what are you sidestepping as a writer when you, you know, when you always want to dress something up? You know, like there is maybe a way in which you're avoiding things by disguising them, which we're very off the beaten track now. But I, I do, I, I did like that she forced it in there. She's like, this is a book about writing partly. Here's my thoughts. Stop faking it. So I think we, we've talked a lot about the, we've talked a lot about the big ideas in the book. Um, and that's because it's a book with a lot of big ideas in it. I want to pick out some sentences because I think one thing that maybe we haven't talked about enough is that Adiche is very good at sentences, right? I mean, that's one of the, yeah. I always feel like vaguely condescending when I say something like that. That's not what I mean. She's a very good writer. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and of course, I, on an unrelated note, because I don't, I don't have significant notes like that about this book, but like whenever I am mean about a book that I've read, I always feel weird because I am still sort of a quasi-aspiring writer. And of course, I haven't right. written anything nearly as good as most of the stuff I'm being ma- mad about. <laughs> and so I always feel sort of like, I don't know. Who am I to tell, like, Victor Laval or whatever that I didn't like these stories? Well, of course, first of all, I didn't tell Victor Laval. Well, I, say, I would say, but, yeah, there is a difference. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference between saying it and telling the person to their face. Yeah, which nah. is what I would not do. But, uh, you know, writing, a, a like, a silly b- blog post for my, you know, 12 readers and saying, I didn't like these stories very much is very silly because I can also recognize that all of those stories are better than anything I've ever written. And so I always feel funny. Um, 
maybe people should just either be critics or artists and not try to do both, even in a silly bloggy way. But anyway, uh, I don't have to worry about that here because DJ is very good at this. Um, so I, there's a couple of particular sentences or lines I just kind of want to pick out early on. So, so the first flashback, or the beginning of the flashback, I should say, is largely about Ephemalu's mother and like all the different churches she goes through and goes to, right? Which are all these sort of quasi-charismatic, like, prosperity gospel-adjacent churches, yeah. right? Not all of them. She started off at, like, a more or less standard Catholic church, I guess. But that's where she spends a lot of her time, and these all very, you know, God will reward you for your faithfulness by giving you a bunch of money and stuff, and, and pretty dramatic stuff, and a real emphasis on, like, you know, the devil and spiritual warfare or whatever, right? And there's a really good bit here. Later on in the service, when Pastor Gideon would leap out in his sharp-shouldered suit and pointy shoes and say, Our God is not a poor God, amen. It is our portion to prosper, amen. Ephemalu's mother would raise her arm high heavenward as she said, Amen, Father Lord, amen. Ephemalu did not think that God had given Pastor Gideon the big house and all those cars. He had, of course, bought them with money from the three collections at each service. And she did not think that God would do for all as he had done for Pastor Gideon, because it was impossible, but she liked that her mother ate regularly now. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, that's really no, that's good. great. Like, the daughter being like, this is insane. But, you know, the last church mom was starving herself to death, so great job pastor gideon you know what i mean <laughs> i get like, you know, uh, it's fu it's funny you you picking that scene out maybe just gave me the very simple language i should have said at the beginning and saved myself like half an hour of, of bloviating which i do i thought this book was surprisingly not polemical for how bluntly it has a position on so many cultural issues do you know what I mean like I, I it's not polemical even though it's bluntly like pro obama right and yet like in some ways she's so good at adding all these facts together to make a bigger scene like you just did, right? Like here's the, like here's the big scale of how prosperity gospel in Nigeria is, you know, is, you know, kind of like taken over my mom's life. And yet here's a small scale of like, she's eating who gives a crap. She does that. So consistently the scaling down, the scaling up that um, even the Obama stuff, like I think this book in some ways is a pretty great historical document for the era. It talks about, which is actually, I think, hard to do when you're basically still in that era, right? Like, this almost reads as if, like, this reads, interestingly enough, you know, 20 years after the era it's describing, that, like, I think it, it'll survive. You know, it'll survive almost as a historical novel, even though it was written contemporary, you know, to its time, if that makes sense. But yeah, I agree. I love, I love, I love that turn at the end. And I, she does it throughout. She always does that. Um, and I think it's a it's an incredible way to get all of her points across and and yet not be polemical, which is you know hard to do. Another little bit. Uh, so, so, if Melu dates uh, Kurt, right, and Kurt's cousin is Kimberly, or maybe it's Kimberly's husband. I can't remember. They're related in some way. Yeah. No. Kurt. Yeah. And, Kurt is cousin of Kimberly. Uh, and Kimberly is this sort of <laughs> hapless uh, white housewife with these two kids that she can't really control. And if Emily babysits the kids for a while, but, but it's kind of fun because when you first get to that, you're like, oh, this woman's going to just be a disaster. And she is kind of, but the book actually stops short of being too mean about her, right? Like if Emily finds her annoying and frustrating sometimes, but also describes them as being friends, right? Right. Uh, and so that's, again, it's a more interesting, more complicated relationship than you might have expected. That said, there is a really good uh, bit here I want to point out too. Uh, Kimberly's sister Laura is just pretty awful, right? And says some mean things or confusing things all the time. And 
Uh, so at one point, Kimberly apologizes for something Laura said, and if Emma Lou decides she doesn't really want to talk about it, right? So she shrugs and smiles and changes the subject, doesn't understand why Laura does all the weird stuff she does, but fine, whatever, right? Um, perhaps it was really about Kimberly, and Laura was in some distorted way aiming at her sister by saying things that would make Kimberly launch into apologies. It seemed too much work for too little gain, though. At first, Ifemelu thought Kimberly's apologizing sweet, even if unnecessary, but she had begun to feel a flash of impatience, because Kimberly's repeated apologies were tinged with self-indulgence, as though she believed that she could, with apologies, smooth all the scalloped surfaces of the world. Like, that's pretty good. That's great. That's really good. Well, and isn't, you know what, it reminds me, isn't at some point, you know, Benze's, one of Benze's scenes, He's thinking about his wife. This is early in the book, and I love this. He describes his wife as like immoderately modest, yeah. right? That she's yeah. she's so deferential and so careful and everything that it actually stands out. And the way that she describes it, which is basically what I just said, you know, immoderately modest, it immediately like dinged in my head because like everyone knows those folks. You know what I mean? Like I I have family members who certainly stand out, like, they, they're actually conspicuous by their efforts to not impose, you know? <laughs> it's like, oh, it'd be easier if you just, like, got in the way now and then. You know, like, I would actually think about you less if you kept asking me, if, if you're like, am I in the way, am I in the way, am I in the way? Like, well, asking me means yes, <laughs> you know? Like, you wouldn't be in the way if you just didn't ask me all the time. Um, it is actually easier for me to just pay for the table than split this check. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You are not exactly. doing me a favor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, I, I, yeah, I think it, I, I do think, yeah. But I think she, she, she does that. So, again, she does that throughout. And that's why I think she has a bit of like that Jane Austen streak where she can kind of put her, f- her finger right on kind of the social ridiculousness of our, you know, um, of our mores and our habits, right? Like she's like, well, that's silly. And you're like, oh, that is silly. Oh, my gosh. That was so apt. <laughs> Well, she also, she, she can do that in a few words, uh, which the person I always think of is, of course, Shirley Jackson. This is partly because I just always think about Shirley Jackson, so yeah. that may not be fair. But Shirley Jackson will, in a sentence, will, I think I've said this on the podcast before, will summarize, you know, satirize, and express sympathy for a person in, like, five words, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Aditya does some of that here, too, where you'll get, like, here's a here's another bit I really liked. Later, uh, for a while, Obenze is working in London, uh on or somebody else's like insurance card, but basically a social security number, right? The, the sort of the same kind of vibe. Um, and first of all, it's kind of fun because he starts off like everyone's kind of nice to him. And there's this sort of dope, dopey dude there named Nigel, who's kind of a goober. And you kind of feel like, Oh, Nigel's being kind of nice to our, our guy, you know, to Obinze. And that the, the, the end of that relationship is actually Obinze offering Nigel a job working for him in Nigeria, <laughs> which was a fun twist. Yeah, I which thought. is great. Uh, that the, you know, this is not where the white guy helps out the immigrant. Eventually the immigrant grows home, makes it big and pulls the, the white guy then is the immigrant, which I thought was a good twist. I which again, it wasn't too, leaned yeah. on too hard. It was just, I mean, no, it makes sense. I understand why he did that. Anyway. Um, there, I didn't fully understand this job. They're basically delivering appliances or something. I didn't fully understand it. It didn't matter. It was, you know, sort of manual labor. And um, various people offer them things when they go, right? Like someone will offer them tea or something like that. And he says, so many people offered tea or water. Once, a sad-looking woman had offered Obinze a small pot of homemade jam, and he had hesitated. But he sensed that whatever deep unhappiness she had would be compounded if he said no, and so he had taken the jam home, and it was still languishing in the fridge, unopened. (laughs) Which, again, it's just a great little, it tells you a lot about him and about whoever this random woman is. It was very good. 
Um, and also, we've all met that person where you're like, I don't understand why this matters to you, but it really does. So, yep, I will take yeah. the, whatever this is. <laughs> no, you, just, you, you, yeah, you take a gift as a favor, right? It's that, yeah, yeah it's that perfect moment of like, this will help you, and I, I'm gonna definitely do it. Uh, no, I did. Yeah, well, you know what's funny? I get sometimes what everyone in my world or my past world of like, you know, MFA workshops and stuff. And even afterwards, you talk about writing, and, and everyone wants to be neutral. So we talk about technique, or you talk about, you know, she's smart, she's funny, she does this well. So, like, you're, you're, you describe the author almost, like, accidentally, right? Like, you never, you know, you're, you, know, you don't want to ever, like, go overboard because you're trying to be neutral. But I do think, like, reading this book was a reminder. You know what? You, like, you have kind of you ha- <laughs> this is so bad you have a personality and you have like wisdom about observations you make or you don't do you know what I mean like at some yeah. point at some point you can't fake this stuff like however good she is at writing like we just talked about she does sum up her observations well but truthfully like those two things aren't totally distinguishable right the ability to enunciate like a weird social situation is the ability to observe it to some extent. And so I think sometimes we don't talk about like, it's not like, you know, it's not like innate, I don't want to get into like innate natural writer, you know, like genius, you know, theories. But but at the same time, at least where I've come from, I feel like in my own journey, it can be really easy to almost minimize what's obvious, which is that like a DJ pays attention, you know, and she has words about what she pays attention to that are really worth hearing. And I, you can't teach that, you know? That's just something you have. You maybe can develop it and imitate it, but you can't teach it, I think. Um, and it is, and it, I think, that, and it's one of, like, the obvious pleasures of reading is that, like, I spent, you know, several hours just kind of hearing her talk about stuff. And at some point, like, that is all I'm looking for is a mind in action that I get to, you know, observe. Um, but, and, I, and, I love, and I especially love it here because she goes... You know, she goes to England, she goes to Nigeria, she goes to different parts of America, and every time she turns her gaze on something, it's like, oh, that's, that feels true and that feels interesting. And um, even when the book lagged for me, that basic, you know, observational wisdom or insight or even funniness, like, that carries, that carries a lot of weight, you know, um, as far as making a book good. I, have, I think I have two more lines I want to pick out here. Um... One of which is actually a line I really didn't like, which I don't, I don't, I don't know. It stuck with me because it was, she's usually so good. But we'll get to that one last. No, we'll do that one. Yeah, we'll do that one next and end with one that's good. That's what we should do. Okay. That's, yeah, sounds good. Um, so the problem with uh, occasionally being a literary fiction writer who cares about language, and I don't know if this <laughs> is what happened here, but it's sometimes you feel like you need to have a clever metaphor or simile or observation here. Like How the of dare the you? Demands one, right? You know, How you're like, dare you, Bill? the rhythm of this sentence demands some kind of metaphor. I ain't got nothing. <laughs> and so in my, and I, in my occasional attempts to write uh, anything, I mean, I do this regardless of what I'm writing, I will just, I'll like open bracket, clever metaphor here, end bracket, because I'm like, I, I'll think yeah. of something later. I don't know if that's what happened here, but Auntie Uju's going to move to a place called Willow. Uh, and it's probably a better choice because she's going to break up with this sort of terrible dude she's been with. And uh, so if Emma Lou is thinking about it, if Emma Lou liked the name of the town, Willow, it sounded to her like freshly squeezed beginnings is a real, like, <laughs> MFA <laughs> sentence. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah. No, well, there's a few moments. Honestly, whenever you, like, whenever you see something described and there's a comma, and then there's the word like afterward. It's always like a coin toss, you know? Yeah. It's like, is this, is this going to make your description 
like more interesting or are you just gonna like have ruined the point of describing something so i don't want to again I think this book is so good that that one just stuck out of me. Or at least the, the, or said, like the writing, the descript, descriptive language, all that is generally so good that that one, I was like, I don't, is yeah, that no, what she, it's like? No, what she, does that she, mean? She definitely, <laughs> yeah, she definitely has some moments. Well, it's it's like that scene with with um, Afamelu taking Kurt to the bookstore, and like it, it yeah. stood out because I was like, this is the one scene. And like, again, maybe this was true. Like maybe I'm the guy in her MFA class telling her this is, you know, this scene, this, this, what it sounds like, it sounds like wish fulfillment. It sounds like someone who wants to do this with a white person they know, as opposed to something that actually happened. If only because, like, Kurt wasn't really in the scene, you know? Like, he didn't respond, or he wasn't weird, or he wasn't, like, sarcastic. Like, it was just such a weird, like, if he had done more things, it might have felt realistic. But it stands, like, that's, you know, that, you know weakness will always stand out which is a bummer but yeah what's your what's your last good line to leave on a good note well, i just briefly on that that part did feel a bit like a socratic dialogue rather than a scene oh, i was like oh you're yeah. right like i know why socrates a... yes i've never noticed that all the women in these magazines are thin and blonde uh but no which but yeah it was it was yeah and it was also untrue to kurt like kurt was more interesting like when he I love, it's actually right before she breaks up with him, which, which we don't see, but it was like the climax of Kurt where she says, you know, he offers to do something and she's like, ah, oh, you're such a sweetheart. And he's like, I don't want to be a sweetheart. I want to be the effing love of your life. And I was like, whoa, Kurt, <laughs> you're a weird dude, <laughs> you know, well, that felt like, so... which, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that felt very true to everything we'd seen with Kurt because uh, he's he's usually I mean he's kind of a dunce sometimes, but he's generally harmless, right? And he's yeah. actually I mean probably a pretty nice guy overall. Uh, but yeah, that was like this weird like possessiveness out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Which, Which, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Like, oh, okay, yeah. cool. Oh, wow, we should break up. Like, like, yeah. and I love that the, the, the next time you see her, she's like, "Yeah, I'm not with Kurt anymore." And I was like, "That makes sense." Yeah, that can't have been good. <laughs> that um, tracks because so she describes it with like sudden heat or something like that too. Like, you know, it, it's not like it didn't work. You know, I don't know what he was going yeah. for, but it didn't work. Yeah. Um, but I guess I have two more very quick things. Uh, they're both very fast. One, she describes somebody she meets towards the end of the book as easy to like, but difficult to take seriously, which is very good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then the last one I wanted to point out, uh, she's working at this magazine, which is owned by the woman who's easy to like, but difficult to take seriously. And it's a terrible fit for her. And, you know, she needs to do something else. But she's working there. And there's this like, she she's like a receptionist. I don't fully understand what her name is Esther. She works there in some smaller capacity. Maybe she maybe she's even a writer. I don't remember, but it's it's a, it's a much lesser capacity, right? Because uh, if Mel right. at this point is an editor, and Esther goes to one of these churches where the pastor is always praying to get rid of certain spirits that do bad things, right? So she says to one of the other women in the office, like, you know, the pastor would help you get rid of the spirit of seductiveness you have, right? And <laughs> if Mel says, well, what's my spirit? And she's like, eh, I don't want to talk about it. And then later on, uh, <laughs> like three pages later, after she's gotten into this huge fight with the, and I think has basically threatened to quit got into a huge fight with everybody else she walks out and esther walks up to her and says well the spirit you have is the spirit of husband repelling <laughs> you are too hard <laughs> i was like i don't know if that's a, that i don't know that might be a thing like i don't know if that's a quote from something i i, I would could totally buy that i have no idea but what a great i know moment in the story whether that's a real thing somebody has says in nigeria or not that's incredible you have the spirit of husband repelling <laughs> not well, specifically you know a spirit of like just generally being a jerk no specifically your problem is you repel husbands <laughs> Great. Well, I, but i love that like in a, in a weird way it's someone once again telling her she's a self-sabotager <laughs> Yeah, no, that's exactly what it really means. Yeah, yeah. no, but but it is. It's great though because yeah, it's like it's like you know, welcome back. Uh, 
So I think, I mean, there's a lot more individual lines I could pick out, but I think I'll probably stop there rather than just reading you guys the whole book. But, um, okay. Well, she does describe at one point, and when early on when she's talking to Abinze, they kiss and she likes it, and she says something about how it's a lot better than her previous boyfriend's salivary fumbling. Yeah. <laughs> is a good, it's a good line, and Obinze reacts to it being a good line. It's one of the things that he likes about her is that she does stuff like that. But that is very good, salivary fumbling. Well, and that's a great moment of the other good advice I heard one time, I think it was from George Saunders too, was like justify your excesses, right? So like as a writer, you have these dumb ticks that the reader automatically notices. So for for me, like – Salivary, what was it again? Salivary, salivary fumbling, uh, f- bumbling, yeah, or fumbling, yeah. Like so that, like with how the rest of the language of you know that high school scene is going, that like that has like a neon sign around it, right? Like, wow, yeah. what a what a writer you must feel like writing this. But of course, she immediately justifies it by having a character react to it. You know what I mean? Like, it's a really yeah. smart way to like, hey, this is a cool thing that I'm definitely gonna say, but I'm gonna make it a, like I'm gonna make it not like an annoying pretension that you know. You know, I'm not gonna make it. Yeah, I, I, I just, it's, it's one of those. I don't know. Like, smart writers do it with like very little things, and she definitely keeps doing it. But also, I actually also, I mean, I already mentioned, I actually also loved Benze's thing where he's like, "I kiss the same way your last boyfriend did. We're just in love." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah that, yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> that makes sense. That sounds That's right." True. Yeah. <laughs> so, cool, man. Okay. Well, do you? I don't think I have any any other big things. Do you have anything else that you want to um, hit on or? Uh, I guess I have one other idea. Um, so, I, uh, I I generally don't like sex in fiction. I just think it's boring and can usually be yeah. replaced by a sentence. And I'm right, by the way. Uh, <laughs> no, you're totally I'm right. I'm just correct uh, yeah. most of the time. And particularly reading this not long after we read Franzen's Freedom, whereas I think I said at the time, the, the characters only understand, like the only language the characters speak is sex in that book, right? Yeah. So yeah. even when conflicts are not actually about sex, they're explicit, they're always reduced to or expressed via sexual terms. And it's, I mean, the guy literally has a series of jokes about a guy's dick being a dowsing rod. Like it's, 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 it's a problem. Uh, but I would say that actually there's a fair amount of sex in this book. Um, and I actually, I felt like mostly it fit and worked. Uh, I'm not saying always 100% of the time, but but it was never, I didn't feel as though it was usually gratuitous. It felt like it actually made some sense. And I was a little surprised by that because I famously, famously, I don't do anything famously, but you know what I mean. I consistently <laughs> hate sex and fiction. So, you know, good job, Adiche. I thought the sex in this fiction was at least mostly <laughs> appropriate. Appropriate is not the word I want here. I'm not actually trying no, to no, make leave a pretty statement. Fine. Although I, probably, anyway. No, I totally agree. Well, again, well, actually, that would one more, once more be like, I think... I think Franzen's attempt to justify his excess of sex crap is to be more excessive. And <laughs> I think most, I think mostly he fails, right? Like he's like, I'm going to punk rock this so that, you know, it's in your face. So it's like an artistic statement almost. And it's like, this just sounds like you're kind of horny, my man, which is again, I don't, maybe it's, maybe it's not a bad thing, but like, it's not the point of the book. Surely is not to like, for me to think about how Franzen is horny, right? Like that's a distraction <laughs> that you don't want readers to have. And yeah, I, but I agree. And it, well, I especially agree because I, I really did keep thinking about freedom when I read this book and which is maybe a disservice to this book in some ways. I'm sure the fans of this book hate Franzen and vice versa may not be true, but you know, I could see it being true. Yeah. Um, but I kept thinking about it because it is like, they're both kind of, you know, they have a certain old fashioned, sensibility to both of them they're both kind of these protracted love stories but actually and i kind of gestured to it a few times but um you know no one talks about i feel like at least that i've heard how much people love these world-building focused literary novels right so like 
part of the joy, if you like freedom, which I did like it more than I thought I would, and you know, I, I didn't love it, but one of the things he does well though is he he build he, like he world builds, right? He puts you into you know what it's like to live in Minnesota on this street at this time of life, what it's like to be a basketball player who has a weird druggy friend in the '70s or whatever, right? Like, you know, it's not just that he's character building, he's world building, and I think this is obviously true for this book too. And I think they both are kind of interested in like, like basically using what we would usually think of as like almost, you know, a different genres tool set to like talk about these niche communities. Um, And I think it's partly why these books are so popular is because a little like genre books are so popular, you step into a fully made world, right? Like there's, there's sort of this pleasure in stepping into something that feels alive um, at the level of, you know, scenery and whatnot. Um, but, but yeah, but I do think, (laughs) I totally agree that there is a lot of sex in this book and you're right. It actually, it didn't, I never was like next, next, next. I feel like she had a good rhythm of like, you know, when she would kind of dive in the details, but also like when she would drop the details was usually really salient and helpful. Yeah. So I, I think we could, you know, continue to pick out at little things for a while, but I think we've more or less gotten to, uh, everything we really wanted to say about this book. I, I really enjoyed reading it. I, She's written one or two other novels and then, again, a lot of essays. So I probably will uh, be interested in picking those up at some point. I think you said that Half of the Yellow Sun, some people said they even liked better. Is that right? Yeah, no, people I trusted in my program kind of said if you couldn't get into Americana, make sure you still check out Half of the Yellow Sun. So it's been on my list for a long time. Yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll probably check out some of her other stuff at some point in the future as well. We're still deciding what we're going to read next, so I won't tell you right now. It's a secret, but we'll post up a link on Twitter uh, well in advance so that you guys can follow Ooh. along at home if you want to. Um, and also because then we will actually decide what we're reading next because at some point we have to start reading these long books. <laughs> um, this is the beginning of our fourth year doing this podcast, um, which wow. is bonkers. Uh, but that is that is a true story, what I just said. So thank you for continuing to listen and for uh, going through these these uh, difficult sometimes or at least very disparate tomes with us. Uh, I think about like this on the same podcast we've done War and Peace, we've done this, we've done Michael Shabon, we've done Charles Taylor. Like I feel like we're doing a pretty good job of keeping our yeah. uh, keeping our, our our choices unpredictable <laughs> and befuddling, which is my goal in life. <laughs> well, and you know what? I'm just wait. I, you know, as far as we don't have next the next book decided, but we don't even have like usually. I feel like at least I do. I have in mind like the book that's gonna break us this year. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like so, Black Lamb and Gray Falcon. Like, it didn't break us, but like it interrupts our lives. You know what I mean? Like I have to like make time for it. Like, like it's a relationship in a way that I e- even beyond what I already do with reading. Because I, I would say, like, Black Lamb, Grey Falcon, War and Peace, definitely a secular age the most. Yeah. It may have been one more. But, yeah, so we haven't, we haven't, um, we haven't decided that book yet, which I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. Anyway, that's just a, an extra teaser for a book that's even farther away from you hearing about. Yeah, but we'll let you know. Uh, so, <laughs> so, but, yeah, thanks for listening, as always. And, uh, yeah, I think both of us would say that this is a good book and worth checking out. Um, we're really, really bucking the curve there. Nobody else liked this, but that's not true. Yeah. Right? I don't think I saw any significant criticism of this book. Unheard of. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> uh, Joel, thanks for talking as always. And we'll, like I said, we'll, we'll post a, a thing on Twitter about what our next book is once we decide what it is. Uh, in the meantime, you'll have to continue to live in uh, uncertainty. And I'm sorry about that. Me I'm too. pretty tired if you guys haven't picked that up this <laughs> podcast. So I'm going to quit talking now. Uh, thanks for talking, Joel. <laughs> you too, Bill. All right, see you around. Bye. Bye. 
thanks as always to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. <laughs> no, but uh, as always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.